we have heard taught to us within the last eight months or so in our Sunday evening services as we have been gathering together as two churches, several of the so-called one another's of the New Testament. And since we are currently in between two Bible book expositions, having finished the Gospel of John before this summer season, I thought it would be good to teach on some additional one another's from the New Testament before we embark upon Paul's letter to the Philippians in the fall. You know that without duplicates in our New Testaments, there are 45 of the one another's. And we would do well as a community of faith to be taught on these one another's. And we've gone through several of them. I won't list them all, but we have taught through love one another, encourage one another, admonish one another, serve one another, several of those. And I want us from the book of Hebrews to be captured by three more one another's this morning just from that book alone. I would like for us to turn, if we will, to the book of Hebrews, where I find three different statements from this writer. We don't know exactly who is the author of the book of Hebrews, but we do know that this is actually a sermon. The whole of this book is not just something that was originally written down, although it was that. This was actually a sermon that was preached, and it was recorded. It's the only sermon that we know of in our New Testaments, which appears to be a complete sermonic message to the people of God. And in this book of Hebrews, with this particular congregation of people, mostly Jews, of course, given the name of this particular Bible book, this writer, this preacher, presumed that some of these to whom he was preaching were not Christians. They might have professed to be Christians. They certainly were among the congregation of true and genuine Christians. But some of them only professed to be Christians without having the reality of true conversion in their lives. They were in danger of fully and finally turning their backs on Christ. And so, this preacher, this writer, gives them, throughout this book of Hebrews, several warnings not to apostatize from the faith that they had once professed, which would, of course, thus signal that they were never true Christians in the first place. And there are several of these warnings. We don't go through all of them this morning, but I want to go over three of them with us because all three of them contain a one another. And so in the context of these one another's, you would have in these warnings the idea that there is something for true Christians to do to their fellow brothers and sisters in Christ so that given these ministries to them verbally, most of them, given these ministries, these verbal exhortations to them, they would therefore not fall away. We don't know in any local church who is and who is not a true Christian. We can make assumptions, right? We can make assumptions that this morning here at Bethany Church on the Hill, that the vast majority of you are genuinely and truly in Christ, that you are indeed a Christian. But we can't assume that every single person, man, woman, and child in this place or any local church on any Sunday is truly and genuinely a believer in Jesus. Churches So many of them are filled with those who not only profess Jesus Christ, but they are genuine. And yet some of those 
who come to church, they sit, they stand with us, they worship with us, they pray alongside us, they give in that offering with us, they bow their heads, uh, they come, they participate, they may even have or own a Bible, and yet not be genuinely Christians in their hearts. And only the Lord knows that. And only time will tell what happens to them. In other words, genuine Christians reach out to other professing Christians around them and they encourage them, they exhort them to persevere. The book of Hebrews is a marvelous New Testament teaching on this matter of perseverance. And why would that be so? Well, it would be so because if we were transported all the way back to the first century and we were either Jew or Gentile in terms of our ethnicity, and we were, especially if we were Jewish, in a congregation like this, hearing a sermon like this, we would be racked with the temptation because of the ostracization of our family and friends because we have left Judaism. And we have professed our allegiance to Jesus Christ. And in those days, those were fighting words. You mean to tell me that you are Jewish by birth, but you are not Jewish now in practice? You mean to tell me that you have left your family, a a family of fellow Jews who worship Yahweh, for this thing that has commonly been called the way, Christians, those who are following someone that they assume and they profess to be the Messiah, whom we actually reject as being the Messiah sent from God. We know that a Messiah will one day come, and when He comes, those Jews living at that time, they will worship Him, but it isn't Jesus. And if one of these Jews, maybe even a number of these Jews, maybe even a sizable number of them, are in a congregation, in a small home, or maybe in a larger home, and they are worshiping, in a sense, by stealth, because the authorities, the Jewish religious leaders, are wanting to do everything they can to stamp out the way to make sure that Jesus Christ is not worshipped as God in human flesh, and certainly not by the Jews, who would reject His Messiahship, who would doubt that He's the Savior of the world, and who would demand allegiance to Yahweh God alone through no mediator who is called Jesus the Christ, the one from Nazareth, the one whom you, the way, are professing to have died, to have been raised from the dead, and who is proclaiming that He will come one day in His second coming to judge the living and the dead. You tell me that, and you are a self-respecting Jew, and I tell you, that's it, you're finished, you must leave this family, there will be persecution, you may even be asked to give up not only your testimony, but your own life. Follow Jesus, go to death. Repudiate Jesus and come back into the fold. This is one of the reasons why the book of Hebrews has been written. To encourage those, mainly these Jews who have professed their allegiance, their faith in Jesus Christ, to remain persevering in that faith all the way to the end, regardless of the persecution, regardless of what may happen to them, regardless of what all outside entities, including the religious leaders, may do to them. And some of them, they indeed are persevering. They've been ostracized. Some of them have been whipped. Some of them burned. Some of them sawn in two. You read the book of 
Hebrews chapter 11 and you find those very references. And that's why Hebrews 11 says constantly, by faith, by faith, by faith, by faith. By faith in Jesus, the Messiah, we shall persevere. No wonder Jesus himself says, and those who persevere to the end shall be saved. They were faithful to the very end. And yet some within their midst, some of their own friends, some of their own Jewish brothers and sisters have come against that persecution and they've wavered. And they've said to themselves, I don't think it's worth it. I don't want to persevere if this is the cost. And so I'm going to go back to Judaism. And I'm going to repudiate the lordship of Jesus Christ. I know I profess. I know that that's what I said I did. I bowed my head like you did. I gave of my resources like you did. I sang in the midst of the assembly like you did. And I received that initial persecution like you did. But I've counted the cost. And I've said it's not worth it. The writer to the book of Hebrews, this preacher, says, I'm writing to you as well. And he says, I want to give you one of these one another's. Look at Hebrews chapter 3. Hebrews chapter 3. If you want an outline point, it might be something like this. Exhort one another every day against sin hardening. Exhort one another every day to avoid, to stand against the hardening of sin. Look at chapter 3, verse 12. Take care, brothers, brothers and sisters in Christ, mainly Jews here. Take care, brothers, lest there be in any of you and evil, unbelieving heart leading you to fall away from the living God. Now can you picture it in your mind after I've introduced the book to you? You are walking along with the congregation. You're in that tightly knit home. You're standing for what you've professed is your faith. You've said Jesus Christ is my Lord. I am a follower of the way, like the book of Acts describes the early Christians. I, I am one of these. I belong to them. I want to be a part of them, come what may. Come what may in terms of persecution and possibly even judgment and ultimately death. That's what happens. I will be ready to die for my Lord Jesus, just as He was ready to die for me. And some of them, hearing that, hearing the authorities outside the door, knowing that impending judgment, not from God Himself, but from the persecutors outside, may be right around the corner he says, take care, brothers, lest there be in any of you an evil, unbelieving heart leading you to fall away from the living God, fall away, to apostatize from the faith that you profess. Verse 13, here's the one another. But exhort one another, how often? Because the persecution is how often? Every day. And you know, add public baptism to the list of commitments that one would make. You profess your faith in Christ, and you submit to public baptism, and you're at the river, and the Jewish authorities are watching from some distance away, and they're making notes on those who are willing publicly to go under the waters of baptism to immerse themselves in the truths of Christianity, including the gospel of Jesus that he died, that he was buried, that he was raised again on the third day according to the scriptures, and that if I would repent and believe and trust in Christ alone, Yahweh's Messiah, 
I would then be willing to publicly identify with these believing people, with these followers of the way, and I'm willing to do it in such a visible and outstanding way that I am willing to be with the saints at the river to undergo baptism, to walk in newness of life, and to arise from that river, and to continue every Lord's day to worship Jesus Christ, knowing that I've been seen, knowing that I've been publicly marked out as one of those Jews who has been deemed by them as unfaithful. He's apostatized from Judaism. He's following Jesus and all of those who are following Him. No wonder it says in verse 13, but exhort one another every day as long as it is called today. Why? That none of you may be hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. What kind of deceitfulness of sin? Those who would come to you and say, are you sure about Jesus? Are you sure that He's the Messiah? Would you be willing to give your life For the sake of this man? Do you you believe that he was raised from the dead? Would you confess with your heart and believe so that you would be willing to die for the sake of following Jesus Christ? Because guess what? That's exactly what it's going to cost you. And let's say that Satan and his demonic hosts energizing these Judaistic tendencies in those religious leaders to try to stamp out by force, mind you, anybody who has left Judaism and who's following a new religion and a man at that, Jesus himself, might you be tempted under the deceitfulness of sin to question your very profession of Christ? Some of them did. This book is a testament to the reality that some of them were being hardened by sin's deceptions so as to fall away from the living God. That's why in verse 14 it says, For we share in Christ if indeed we hold our original confidence firm to the end. You see... Salvation isn't just for the moment. How many people have you met where if you were to talk to them for any length of time, they might say something like this, oh yes, yes, I profess Christ. I I did it when I was a young boy. Uh, I was baptized in the church. I did thus and so and so. And and what about now? Are you living for Christ now? Oh no, that's something that I did in the past. Uh, It was my, my fire insurance. I got that all out of the way. And now all that I need to do is to look back upon my baptism or look back upon my church attendance or look back upon my family. And if they're good, I'm good. And now this writer says, if you in your original confidence firm to the end, even when under the threat of the ending of your own life if you don't recant Jesus Christ. And apparently some of them did and they were deceitfully tempted and they did fall to the temptation and they were hardened, notice that word, hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. And then he even gives an example, verse 16, for those, for for who were those who heard and yet rebelled. And then he gives an illustration. Was it not all those who left Egypt led by Moses? In the Old Testament, the landscape was strewn with the carnage of those who started well and didn't end well. In fact, other than the children of those Israelites who went with Moses for 40 years across the landscape, other than Joshua and Caleb who said, we can deal with these people. God is on our side. And all the rest said, I'd rather be back in Egypt. I'd rather be be in Egypt and suffering there than, than being led by you, Moses, which in a sense is saying, I've got a big problem with you, God, because you appointed Moses as our leader. I don't 
I don't have just a big problem with Moses. I got a big problem with you. And that, that's the illustration he gives. Was it not all those who left Egypt led by Moses? Verse 17, and with whom was he provoked, was God provoked through Moses for 40 years? Was it not with those who sinned, whose bodies fell in the wilderness? And to whom did he swear that they would never enter his rest, but to those who were disobedient? So we see that they were unable to enter because of what? Unbelief. Let the record show that history defines a true Christian by a person who perseveres all the way to the end. It's a sad story, but I love the story of Martin Luther, who if there was anybody who might have been tempted in the annals of church history to recant at opportune times, it was that guy, right? I mean, he was going against the institutional Roman Catholic Church and even saying that the Pope errs and that their doctrine is faulty, especially and particularly with regard to justification by faith alone in Christ alone. And by the way, October 31st, 1517, 500 years ago this coming October 31st. 500 years. And here's Martin Luther. He would have been exhibit A of someone who at some point, they were, they were traveling after him, they were pursuing him, and if they'd caught him, he would have paid with his life. So they hid him in a little alcove at a castle in Wittenberg, And he just happened to translate the New Testament in the vernacular of the people. And he led the people of God and he was a major reformer so that you and I as Protestants, Protestants, are alive today with the ability through what God did in and through this man to worship on this day. And Martin Luther, ever the controversialist, was laying on his deathbed. And one of his associates, as he was about to take his last breath, leaned down and said, Dr. Luther, do you still believe what you have professed? And he said in his German brogue, yeah. And he died. Faithful. Persevering to the end. That's why the warning is here. So what do we do? You say, that's, that's a fine story about Martin Luther. That's even a finer story about those in the book of Hebrews who were persevering to the end. It's a great story. How does it relate to me? Here it is, my friends. Exhort each other every day. Exhort each other every day. Say to your fellow brothers and sisters in Christ here at Bethany, how are you doing? Are you persevering? I know it's tough. I know it's hard. Do not be hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. Do not allow your life to undo all that you profess. Persevere all the way to the end. Exhort each other every day. We probably don't do that enough, do we? Exhort each other every day. You say, well, how do do you do that? How do you really exhort each other every day, especially as it relates to this idea of perseverance, being firm to the end? Well, theologians have two great words that you and I ought to revive back into the Christian vocabulary. And one of those is a negative. And it's the word, as theologians call fighting against sin, mortification mortification. You might hear someone today use it in this sense, oh, I was mortified at the thought. Well, this is far more than that. This is a mortification that talks about fighting against sin by killing it, by putting it to death. For instance, we don't have time to look at it, but Romans 12, 1 and 2. 
it gives both a positive and negative. And the negative is, no longer be conformed to the pattern or the image of what? This world. This world. This wicked world. This wicked world that doesn't want you to persevere to the end. Why? Because Satan is the god of this world. And he doesn't want true Christians Believing Christians, fortified Christians to persevere. Now they will, but he will stop at nothing to make sure that those genuine Christians are miserable every step of the way as they're doing it. Are you encouraged by that? I mean, you want to say something like this. I'm doing fine. Please leave me alone. I don't want you around me. I don't want your temptations. I don't want your threats. I don't want your condemnations. But he will, and he'll do it all the way to the end. So therefore, we must exhort each other every day so that we won't be hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. You say, well, can true Christians ever lose their salvation? Not on your life. But he can certainly make us miserable while we're on our way to heaven. And he does. And there are those who profess that they're in Christ. And only God knows. Only He, with His omniscient x-ray eyes, can see into the human heart and see those who are truly His. And they look like us, and they sometimes talk like us, and they sometimes live like us as the genuine people of God. And they're not really genuine. And Satan will also tempt them. And their response to that hardening of the deceitfulness of sin is to become even rock harder still. To the point where, ultimately, they fall away. They apostatize. They chuck it. They jettison the faith. And they do it, according to Romans 12 too, because they've been allured by the world, by their own flesh, by the devil, and they ultimately fall away. And that's why, my friends, Colossians chapter 3, verse 5 says, put to death, mortify what is earthly in you that which remains in you. Put it to death. Kill it. Mortify it. That means that we are dealing seriously with sin. Mortify it. Kill it. That's the negative. Here's the positive. Here's the positive. Romans 12.1 Present your bodies as a living, holy, and acceptable sacrifice. That's positive. It's not just dealing with sin. That's negative, And that's what theologians call mortification. But it's also positive. You're presenting your body to God as a living and holy and acceptable sacrifice. And that's positive. And theologians have a word for that too. And this is a word that's even less common than mortification. Vivification. Vivification. I can't even say it properly. Like, like the idea of revive... Revival, the V-I-V, vivification, is that idea that you are, you are arising. You are being revived. It's an uplifting. It's a, it's a powerful reviving of your soul when you are low. It's when the Spirit of God brings you to a place where you are rising above the sinful temptations of your life and you are working hard at seeing this vivification so that you are God's plan and purpose like Ephesians 2.10 says that He has foreordained works for you and me to do that He has prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. That's positive. If you want to use Paul's language in Ephesians 4 and Colossians 3, it's this, put off, put on. Put off sin, that's mortification. Put on righteousness, that's vivica. <laughs> At least I've given you the word. This is, this is how God works in the matter of sanctification. This is how God uses us in our holiness to persevere. How about another one another? Hebrews chapter 10. Hebrews chapter 10. This is 
This is another one another. If the first one is exhort one another every day so that we could stand against this hardening of sin based on its deceiving us, Hebrews 10, 22 to 25 says, stir up one another to love and good works. Stir up one another to love and good works. So exhort one another. Secondly, stir up one another or stimulate one another. This is, this is a great word, by the way, stir up or stimulate. It's used in some contexts, this word stir up or stimulate, to incite a riot. To incite a riot. We might even say it like this if we were to translate it this way. Incite a riot in the church of love and good works. You know, in the midst of the warnings that he gives... He tells the true people of God, here's the antidote against falling away. Here's the antidote against you seeing your brothers and sisters in Christ and and you're saying something like this, what happened to to Charlie? What happened to Fred? What happened to Ethel? What happened to, to Betty? What happened to them? Where did they go? Where are they? I haven't seen them around. And upon investigation, they've fallen away. They've left. That's why 1 John 2.19 says they went out from us because they were not really of us. For if they had been of us, they would have remained with us. But they went out from us in order that it might be made manifest or revealed that they were really not a part of us. 1 John 2.19. So in the midst of the warning that he gives, he's saying what, what the faithful have to do, what the true have to do, is that they have to continually exhort One another, every day, persevere, my friend, persevere, persevere, stick to it, trust the Spirit of God, mortify the flesh, vivify your life, trust in the Spirit of God, and we need to stir up each other, stimulate each other to love and good works. Look at chapter 10, verse 22. And he gives three let us's. Let us, verse 23 Let us, verse 22, let us, verse 24, verse 22 says, let us draw near, and if you were to study the book of Hebrews for any length of time, you would find out that that phrase, let us draw near, is a kind of salvation term. Let us draw near to Christ. Let us cling to Christ. Let us draw near with a true heart, not a deceived heart. In full assurance of faith, not just half-baked faith, but a full assurance of faith with our hearts sprinkled clean from an evil conscience and our bodies washed with pure water, the pure water of the Word of God. This is kind of a gospel call, and it's kind of a gospel call to perseverance for the true. Let us draw near, and we have to do it with a true heart in full assurance of faith. And then he says in verse uh, 23, let us hold fast the confession of our hope without wavering. See, there are people who waver. But God, He's the one who promised He's faithful. He'll be faithful to you if you're faithful to Him. In verse 24, and let us consider how to stir up one another to love and good works. And even very practically says in verse 25, not neglecting to meet together as is the habit of some, but encouraging one another as another one another, and all the more as you see the day drawing near. What kind of day is drawing near? The day of judgment. The day when someone has to give an account for their life. And I know that this is, this is what this means because he says, for, verse 26, now he's going to explain it, for, verse 26, if we go on sinning deliberately, this is, that, this is that part of the crowd in the church who's waffling, they're wavering, and now he's got a warning to them. If they go on sinning deliberately after receiving the knowledge of the truth, there no longer remains a sacrifice for sins, but a fearful expectation of judgment and a fury of fire that will consume the adversaries. Anyone who has set aside the law of Moses like they did in the wilderness, 
They died without mercy on the evidence of two or three witnesses. How much worse punishment do you think will be deserved by the one, this this professor of Christ, but he's not genuine, by the one who has spurned the Son of God and has profaned the blood of the covenant by which he was sanctified and has outraged the Spirit of grace? Someone says, wait a minute, wait a minute. That sounds like a Christian who was sanctified and outraged the Spirit of grace. Well, don't forget, don't forget. That's what everybody who walks into church and who professes Christ and who gives of their funds and bows their head when they pray and reads their Bible, uh, they're, they're all looking like Christians. They all say, by which I was sanctified and I love the blood of the covenant and I love the Holy Spirit. And yet, if you in fact profane the blood of that covenant, And you outrage the Spirit of grace, the Holy Spirit. That's not a believer. In fact, I know this because verse 30 says, For we know Him who said, and this is the Lord, Vengeance is mine, I will repay. And again, the Lord will judge His people. In this case, He'll look at all of those Israelites in the the wilderness and He will judge them because they were unbelieving. And then He says in verse 31, It's a fearful thing to fall into the hands of the living God. Oh, it's fearful. You know, this is a message we could entitle something like this, how to play church. How to play church. How to go through the motions. How to, how to sing Jesus is mine. How to, how to look like a Christian. But it's not true. And that's when he says, with somebody who comes along and says, okay, but... But I don't know, am I, am I Christian, am I not? Well, well, I'm looking at my life and, and, and I'm, being, I'm being tempted and, and, I, don't, and I don't know and, and maybe I'm, I'm not. And, and, and then the true Christians come alongside and say, let's help you, brother. Let's help you, sister. I want to exhort you every day so that you would not continue to be hardened by sin. It's deceitful, it'll vex you, it'll tempt you, it'll waylay you until you don't know what to do, you don't know how to respond, and you need believing brothers and sisters to come alongside you to help you so that you can get off that temptation track and that you can say, I am a believer, I am a true regenerate believer in Jesus Christ, and that is true of me. Thank you, brother, thank you, sister, for getting me back on the right track on human terms. Yes. And that's what he does here. Look at verse 32. But recall the former days when, after you were enlightened, you endured a hard struggle with sufferings, sometimes being publicly exposed to reproach and affliction, and sometimes being partners with those so treated, for you had compassion on those in prison, and you joyfully accepted the plundering of your property, since you knew that you yourselves had a better possession and an abiding one, therefore do not throw away your confidence, which has a great reward, for you have need of endurance, so that when you have done the will of God, you may receive what is promised. Look at verse 39. But we are not of those who shrink back and are destroyed, but of those who have faith and preserve their souls. Hey, that's what I like to hear. Come alongside me, brother. Come alongside me, sister. Don't let me waste in the wilderness. Don't don't let me be that who is looking on carnal things. Come alongside me. Exhort me every day as we see the day of judgment drawing near. And, by the way, stir me up to love and good works. And according to verse 25, when I start missing the regular attendance of the communion of the saints on the Lord's day, call me. Reach out to me. Ask me, why aren't you here? We love you. We miss you. You know, if you don't minister your spiritual opportunities in the church, then we're impoverished as a community. We need you. Come back. Don't ever be reticent to reach out to those who are a part of the fellowship and say, we need you. Come. Be ministered to by us, and we want to minister to you. Don't forsake the assembly of ourselves, as is the habit of some. That's why even that's a disciplinable offense. If someone has such a chronic exit 
from the church and we never hear from them and, and months go by and we reach out and we, we try to find them like a, a lost sheep and we go to them and they say, I don't want to have anything to do with Christianity. I'm not into it anymore. I've jettisoned those things. Don't like it. Don't want it. That's a person who, according to this passage, may very well be that person who's profaned the blood of the covenant and has outraged the spirit of grace. It's a serious thing. No wonder stirring up one another is also a serious thing. I mean, it's not a take-it-or-leave-it proposition, right? It's, it's for the whole church. Stimulate them. Stir them up to love and good works. Encourage them, and in some cases, admonish them. And exhort them every day, because the day of judgment will come. The day will reveal the true heart of a person. And there's even a third and final one another. Look at Hebrews chapter 12. Hebrews chapter 12. You know, this is a passage... Another one of these warnings where the writer is saying as he's preaching to this congregation, oh, and by the way, when you're disciplined by the Lord, when He spiritually spanks you on the spiritual backside, that's a good thing. That's a good thing. Oh, it's maybe not a good thing as you feel it in the moment, but it's ultimately a good thing. Look at verse 7. It is for discipline that you have to endure. God is treating you as sons. For what son is there whom his father does not discipline? If you are left without discipline in which all have participated, then you are illegitimate children and not sons. You know what he's saying? If you've never received the disciplining hand of the Lord, it means that you're not really one of the Lord's sons. But if you have received that discipline, and it hurts, we might even say this way, it hurts so good. Oh, I don't like it in the moment. But afterwards, look at what it does. Look at verse 11. For the moment, all discipline seems painful rather than pleasant. But later, when it's run its course, when it's done its work, it yields the peaceful fruit of righteousness to those who have been trained by it. That's what we say to our kids. That's what Beth and I were absolutely committed to doing We loved our kids so much that we gave them the rod of reproof when they stepped out of line because even though they didn't like it in the moment, it ultimately, after they were trained by it, yielded its peaceful fruit of righteousness. Where you could actually go into a restaurant and have a nice time. (laughs) And if you have a mother or a father who never disciplines their children in any way. It's as though you could say, I don't think they must be your children. They must be illegitimate. Because what father, what earthly father doesn't discipline his children because when he does, they turn out in a way that God superintends. That's why he says in verse 12, Therefore, If you've been trained by this discipline of the Lord when He spiritually spanks you because He's your heavenly Father, therefore, lift, this is to the congregation, lift your drooping hands, congregation, and strengthen your weak knees. That means strengthen any weak knees of the weak need among you. And make straight paths for your feet so that what is lame may may not be put out of joint but rather be healed. In other words, if you've got somebody in your midst and they are weak-kneed and they are falling and they've got a joint out of place and they can't walk the same path you can walk and they're struggling and you know it, you come alongside them. And if you've got somebody who's walking out of cadence, out of line, they need to be spiritually spanked in love by grace so that they could be peacefully fruited for righteousness because They've been trained to receive it. You've got drooping hands. You've got weak knees. You've got a crooked path. And all that God does in the Christian community is He brings us all together and we meet the needs of each other even when we don't assume we needed it. But then when we've been trained by it, we turn to that brother and sister and say, I can't thank you enough 
for coming alongside me. I can't thank you enough for sharing that passage of Scripture with me. I can't thank you enough for spanking me when I needed to be spiritually spanked. I can't thank you enough for telling me that I'm on the path that leads to destruction. I can't tell you how many conversion stories I've heard where people say something like this, I thought I was a Christian, I thought I knew the Lord, and when I was in the midst of the congregation of the righteous, I realized I wasn't righteous. I mean, I went to church, I bowed my head when everybody else did, I gave my money when everybody else did, I prayed the prayers when everybody else did, I tried to get involved in ministry, and I was empty, and I was spiritually dead, and I didn't realize it, and you came alongside me, and you, you lifted my drooping hands, and you strengthened my weak needs, weak knees, and you made my paths straight, so that when you came alongside me, I responded to the gospel as I'd never responded to it before. And that's why verse 14 says, strive for peace with everyone. And strive for the holiness. So if it's exhort one another, stir up one another, strive for peace with one another. And what kind of peace? Not fake peace. Not fake peace. Real peace. The real peace that comes from Jesus in salvation. That's real peace. Strive for that kind of peace, the peace that actually brings holiness. And notice what he says here, strive for peace with everyone and implied, strive for the holiness without which no one will see the Lord. If you do not have the holiness that only Jesus can bring, you will not see the Lord. That's a definitive holiness, that's a positional righteousness, and only Jesus, who was perfectly righteous, He gave us what we didn't have, and He gave us that righteousness, and we were healed by that perfect righteousness of Jesus Christ, which we could not obtain on our own, and practically speaking, because I have that kind of righteousness, I have practical, everyday, ongoing righteousness, however flimsy it might look at times, I am growing in my righteousness so that I have both positional holiness and I have practical holiness. And one day, if I have those two things, I will see the Lord. And he says, see to it, verse 15, that no one fails to obtain the grace of God. That means that somebody could fail to obtain the grace of God. And even somebody who's in the fellowship. It's not just that boozer on the street. It's not just that, that flimsy excuse of somebody who doesn't want to go to church. It's people in the fellowship who can fail to obtain the grace of God. Even so much so that he says, and that no root of bitterness springs up and causes trouble and by it many become defiled. And then he gives an illustration, an example, verse 16, that no one is sexually immoral or unholy like Esau. You remember him who sold his birthright for a single meal. He gives an example. Here's a guy who was in the fellowship. He was around. I mean, he was, he was a Jew. I mean, certainly if anybody's in, this Jew Esau's in. And he says, does the writer to Hebrews, I'm going to preach and I'm going to give you an example. Here's Esau, and he was so into himself that he sold his entire birthright for one morsel of a meal. I mean, it was a good meal. I mean, it was a good meal. Best he ever tasted. And then it was what? Gone. And so was his birthright. And then he went on to other things, including sexual immorality. And then afterwards, verse 17, for you know that afterward, when he desired to inherit the blessing, he was rejected, for he found no chance to repent, though he sought it with tears. You ever, you ever had somebody like that? Where they, they act like they want the kingdom. They act like they want salvation. They act like they want it. And so they pray the prayer and they do all the hoops and they jump through them. But when you examine the life in its totality find out that they really want what they want and not what God wants. 
And you might have somebody like Esau who's sexually immoral. And then when it comes to a time where somebody's looking at that life and they're making that examination and, and Esau is saying, yeah, I want to repent. Sure I do. And then you see the tears. You see the tears. And somebody says, look, nobody who really, really wants to reject salvation is going to make tears over it. Really? I've seen it. 30 years as a pastor. I mean, I've walked out of somebody's house at times and I've said to my associate, if that's not repentance, I don't know what is repentance. And then a few months later, a few years later, that person jettisons the whole thing never to return. And I say, I guess I really didn't know that heart. And Esau, he sought it with tears. And we want to give everybody the benefit of the doubt. We want to say to everybody and about everybody, oh, he means well. We've got a phrase in the South. I've lived there many, many years, more there than here. Oh, bless his heart. He means well. I mean, you, you sound so judgmental. You sound so harsh. Hey, this is so serious. This is so serious that one of our Bible books, the book of Hebrews, has three warnings. It's actually got more, but three we've covered today. And that writer, that preacher is saying that it can happen. So I want to be faithful to this, right? It can happen. And if it can happen, if it can happen to somebody like Esau, it can happen to little old you or me if we're not on our spiritual toes. And that is to be exhorted every day by our brothers and sisters, to be stimulated, to be stirred up, and to strive for holiness. Striving for it. It's, it's hard work. But oh, it yields the peaceful fruit of righteousness when we've been trained by it. And then when that day comes, my friends, when that day comes, when you and I, like Martin Luther, are on that deathbed, and someone says to you and me, and it may be your most cherished loved one, maybe your spouse, maybe your children, and I can't wait until that day that if I'm the one laying in that bed, and I have those eight children around me and my wife, and they say, do you still believe? I want to say, yeah! Don't you? Let's pray. Oh, Father. We want to say yes to you because Jesus Christ is the yes and amen. We want to believe to the very end. We want to strive for peace with everyone and strive for holiness. We want to exhort one another every day and we want to stir up love and good works for every believer. Lord, we don't know who's genuine out there. You do. And we want to exhort and stir up and strive with everyone around us and we want them to strive and stir up and exhort with us so that we are safely brought by your superintending protection and grace to persevere to the end so as to be saved. Lord, thank you for these one another's, even though they're in a context of great and sober warning. May we listen and learn to our eternal prophet. In Jesus' name, amen.